episode 155 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Mapping Hydra Development, with Dr. Selena Giuliano. Hey everyone, we are Drs. Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Speaking of bright minds, we want to set yours to work for us Do you know a researcher that you think would make a great guest on an upcoming episode? Reach out to us at info at stemcellpodcast.com to share your suggestions. Some of our favorite guests have been recommended to us by our listeners, and we're always interested in hearing more. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Selena Giuliano. From the University of California, Davis, she's on the podcast to talk about her research into the mechanisms of development and regeneration of the essentially immortal aquatic animal, Hydra. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. But first, activate, expand, and differentiate your cells with more than 200 cytokines, chemokines, and growth factors from stem cell technologies. These reagents are validated, super important, to ensure reproducibility across a variety of applications for immunology and stem cell research. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash cytokines. Yeah, you can differentiate your cells, but, uh, you know, what we're going to start off the roundup with is pluripotency. It's been near on 15 years almost. Since Has it been that long? Yeah, well, 13 years, okay. I mean, close to 15, almost 15. Two years shy of 15, Arun. Why do you have to ask about the details, you jerk? Anyway, it's been a while since the pivotal finding from Shinya Yamanaka and John Gurdon. Well, from Shinya, but based on John Gurdon's findings, um, you know, we're talking about reprogramming here, and there have been countless studies in the interim to address the function of each one of the components in the reprogramming cocktail. Indeed, uh, Yamanaka's laboratory itself, they showed that of the four transcription factors in the reprogramming cocktail, those are OCT4, SOX2, KLF4, and CMYK. For those of you who've been under a rock for a decade, only CMYK could be omitted, okay? And uh, although SOX2... KLF4 and CMYK could be replaced by other members of their own transcription factor families. OCT4 couldn't be substituted by the other OCTs, OCT1 or OCT6, okay? So more details. There's a chance, you know, possible. It's possible to substitute for OCT4 in the reprogramming cocktail. There have been a lot of studies about that. But, uh, you know, there, it, there's nuance there. And Indeed, there's a lot of others, not a lot, but studies from uh, multiple labs showing that OCT4 alone is sufficient to reprogram certain cell types that already have, you know, the other transcription factors, one or more of them expressed in the background there. All right, it all makes sense. Um, But of all the substitutes for OCT4 that have been used, uh, they all essentially work through activating the endogenous gene, right? So it looks like, okay, you look at all these studies, it seems like OCT4 is really critical for reprogramming. Um, and, well, until Scholler Lab and other labs have, have shown that um, OCT4 is not actually critical for uh, establishing totipotency in development, and you can get uh, OCT4 oocytes, uh, OCT4 null oocytes, that can still reprogram somatic nuclei to pluripotency, right? So it's, there's still some questions there, right? You need OCT4, but you don't necessarily need it for totipotency. You can still get OCT4, you know, minus OCT4 oocytes doing reprogramming. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of open questions, and it's assumed that OCT4 is necessary, right? But get this, in a kind of an uh, offhand study from the Scholler Lab, they were really looking... Um, to try and really drill down on what the different OCT factors do. Uh, So they had a kind of subtractive methodology where they had uh, a negative control, in fact, with all the other factors except OCT4. And they were going to compare all the OCTs, including OCT4, 
uh, in the context of the other Yamanaka factors. And what they found, to their great surprise, Arun, was that the negative control to study these different POU factors, it was able to reprogram, to their surprise. In fact, SOX2, KLF4, and CMIC alone sufficed uh, free reprogramming. And I think one of the really interesting uh, byproducts of this study, so this is from Hans Scholler Lab um, at the Max Planck Institute, I should say, uh, but one of the interesting byproducts when they looked into this as a cell stem cell article, the reason it's a cell stem cell article is because they really go into it, and they surmise that the reason why the previous efforts, like no one has ever subtracted OC4, right? But uh, the reason why this didn't work in the past is because when they simultaneously induce both SOX2 and CMYK, it immediately results in retroviral silencing. And all the previous attempts, they assumed, were using retroviral vectors. So when you have SOX2 and CMYK in there, you know, uh, you're going to pretty much undermine that whole methodology. And they went a different way and showed that they could get it with just the, the skim factors, I guess, instead of oxim, skim rolls off the tongue better. So they got this skim reprogramming. And here's another thing that was huge, and this is really in the title, which I should have led with, is that when you reprogram in the absence of exogenous OCT4, you get greatly improved developmental potential of the iPS cells there. And they did this by just looking at the numbers, how, how often and how, how frequently, efficiently they could get uh, tetraploid complementation to work. So that's mice that were produced entirely from the uh, donor cells there. Uh, and they show that it was much more efficient when you had this skim reprogramming. It's nice. It's a nice name, skim. It's like light, like skim milk. You have skim Yamanaka reprogramming. Of course, this has major implications for further development and application of iPS cell technology because these cells, they seem to be you know, more potent. And also, it forces us to maybe revisit a lot of previous studies to try and reframe those results and understand uh, them differently in the context of this new result Arun. So it's a pretty cool uh, study from one of the major contributors in the field, Hans Scholler and his group. Here we are 13-ish years after the initial discovery of iPSCs, and we're still learning so much about reprogramming, right? I mean, it's it's a process that I thought, you know, it's been commercialized now. There's kits you can buy for reprogramming, and there's so many things you can do to facilitate the process. But here we are just still learning about what we discovered back in 2006, right? And I guess, like, you know, the dream, the ultimate dream is to kind of have this approach where you can do one-to-one -one reprogramming. Like, you have a single cell, and you can directly reprogram that single cell into an IPS, right? Because hmm. the efficiency is still not perfect. There's work that needs to be done. But, like, in my view, I think that's kind of the ultimate goal. Oh, yeah. If we could get it consistently directed in a in a way that we know exactly what the input-output is, although I think with biology being as uh, complex and scattershot as it is, that that's going to be a, a, uh, a tough goal to realize, Arun. I'm leaving that to you, your generation leading the way. My generation leading the way, I guess. I don't know. We're kind of all over the place. Like, we're going to space. and Oh, yeah, on, on that topic, <laughs> space. My favorite topic. One of my favorite topics, in addition to stem cells, of course. Well, Dalen, you know, I got to toot my own horn a little bit today. It's, uh, it's a special day because yesterday um, our paper came out, our big IPS cardiomyocytes in space study. Maybe Congratulations, you Arun. You deserve all the praise. Come on, tell me all about it. Oh, man. All right. If you, if, if you say so, you know, if you say so. So, yeah, I'm going to talk about the paper that just came out yesterday in Stem Cell Reports. And it's, it's, of course, not just me. It's a huge group effort across the country, across the world. It's, uh, it's a collaborative effort between folks over at the Stanford Cardiovascular Institute, at SpaceX, at NASA. It's, uh, it was a fun project. It was six years in the making, and uh, it came out yesterday in Stem Cell Reports. It's really exciting to see. Well, so in a nutshell, we sent some IPS-derived cardiomyocytes to the space station. Pretty exciting. So we did that back in 2016, and uh, we sent them up there for about a month. 
And I think I might have talked about this a little bit, so I'm not going to go super in-depth into, like, how we set it up. Yeah, we set it up for a month. They were cultured by Dr. Kate Rubens, who's an astronaut and also a biologist, which is super awesome. And so Dr. Rubin was able to maintain the cells in orbit for a month and do regular nutrient changes, video microscopy, you know, look at uh, gene expression changes, all that good stuff. And now we have an idea of finally what exactly happened to the cells after they're in spaceflight for a month. So we found a couple things. One thing is that they actually change when it comes to their contractility. They reduce their contractility at the level of the single cell pretty quickly, pretty much within the course of a couple of days after being exposed to, to microgravity. And the other thing is we have an upregulation in mitochondrial enzymes, certain metabolic enzymes that might be compensating for the fact that you're losing contractility. So those two big things. But really, the other thing is just conceptually, I think, you know, I would hope that our study can kind of lay the foundation for future work aboard the space station because this is kind of – that's the goal of the space station. I don't think a lot of people realize it is first and foremost supposed to be a laboratory and it's supposed to be accessible to pretty much anybody who wants to do research. And if we can show that, hey, you know, I'm a biologist, like I, I love space, but like I'm not a space, I'm not an astronaut, right? So, and I can still send stuff up there and do work that's gonna lead to good results. It's accessible. It's, it's an accessible research laboratory for science. And uh, hopefully it's going to last, you know, beyond the next five years. But I think we have to take advantage of it. And so, you know, hopefully, if nothing else, you know, we're able to generate, you know, good data, but also generate some exposure for the space station. It, it, you know, it warms my heart. Okay, you know, I'm a big fan of space. I've, I grew up wanting to be an astronaut. Maybe I'll still be an astronaut one day. I don't know. But yeah, it's it's cool to see it finally come out. It's very cool. I mean, it's just so cool. If, if it were me, I'd just be saying I do experiments all over the world and off-world. I just That would be like my summary. Because when you talk to a lot of lay people about stem cells, they're excited in theory, and then their eyes glaze over when you get into the details. But when you add the space component, I think I might be able to hold their attention for at least a couple minutes. I got one question here about the space sure. stuff, you know. There's a, the, a lot, I think, of the the... the idea going in is like, oh, we're going to be extended space flight, and there may be some kind of risks to that. And I think that's kind of borne out with these long-term occupancy of the space station studies. You know all about that. Uh, but is there any... Uh, I know some studies have also used or exploited the idea of microgravity as like an opportunity, um, a way to, to utilize this, you know, un unique... Uh, atmosphere, whatever milieu, uh, to exploit it to positive ends. Is there any any results unexpected where you're like, or maybe some positive elements? I know it's different, and difference usually bad when you talk about overevolution. But are there elements of of being in space that might be uh, a bonus? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and that's kind of what everybody's asking about. And it's like, you know what if space can actually like make us better as as a species or something you know like is it is it going to facilitate our evolution to the next level of humanity or something like that right because mm. you know you're right i mean for the most part there have been you know studies like ours that have shown that yeah there's adaptations that happen to the human body when it's in, in space and to our cells and all that but what can space be good for? That's a fantastic question. Like back in the day, of course, like I think the defining translational uh, experiment or translational biology experiment that was done on station was the protein crystallization. So protein crystallization has been shown that, you know, you can actually generate really advanced protein crystals in microgravity that you weren't able to, to do here on the planet. And that's actually been super informative when it comes to drug discovery, actually, you know, for for different compounds. So when it comes to the stem cell side of things, though, I think it'd be cool to actually use microgravity as kind of like a, a natural suspension bioreactor, right? So, so hear me out. Like, you have suspension bioreactors, and you use them to grow, like, organoids and all that, right? And mm. it shows that you can actually grow organoids really well in suspension, but, like, that's what microgravity is, right? That's what spaceflight is. It's just suspension. So what if you can use that for like organoid development? I think that'd be pretty exciting. Amazing implications. Just send uh, your cultures up the space elevator, I guess. Let them incubate, bring them down, and put them into people. It sounds like some really 
high tech, although I'll say future, future tech there. It's going to be more than 13-ish years, Arun, till we're doing that, I would guess. But you know what they're doing right now is they're doing these studies that I think a lot of people have been waiting for and, uh, you know, from both the positive and negative end, uh, it's this kind of blastocyst complementation arena that we're talking about. This isn't exactly interspecies. Uh, I know, Arun, you and I both were at the ISSCR meeting this year. Uh, we listened to Hiromitsu Nakauchi talk about his you know, trying to generate organs from other species in mice. And it's a lot of challenges. People have been trying to do this since the very beginning. And it turns out that even minor spe species differences can lead to non-functional embryos. I took a shot at it myself. Human uh, embryonic stem cells in mouse blastocysts, that was a not a success, I would say, although we did. <laughs> it was a challenge. <laughs> it was a challenge, although we did learn a few things about that. Go check it out. It's about 10 years old. I can say that I was in early with the blastus complementation, although I didn't do it to this amazingly nuanced level. This is a story from Munamasa Mori. Hiromitsu Nakauchi also on there and Wellington V. Cardoso. Uh, these are from uh, Munamasa Mori and Wellington Cardoso are from Columbia here in New York. And Hiromitsu Nakauchi is uh, it, at Stanford, also has a uh, post in Japan. All right, so this is really setting the stage, okay? They're not going crazy here. It's a nature medicine story which suggests the clinical implication, but this is all in mouse. But the clinical implications are very strong, all right? And the basic idea is that while there have been a lot of studies showing, not a lot, but there have been some studies showing that you can, you know, you can uh, successfully generate a, a pluripotent stem cell derived pancreas, for instance, that can rescue uh, lethality of the PDX1 deficient embryos, right? So that's like this global knockout, but it has a very specific phenotype in the pancreas, and you can rescue that pluripotent stem cells. This is a more laser targeted approach, and it's going to set the stage for doing this in mouse, also larger animals. And it's based on the lung, all right? So just the numbers here, 5% of the United States population diagnosed with COPD, all right? Almost 200,000 patients dying annually with lung disease. That's just in the United States. Of course, there's lung transplantation. That's an option, but we know the problem there. Not a lot of donors. You get the whole graft-first-host thing. So that's a major challenge. Um, and so a lot of, I think, groups have thought, like most organs, hey, we'll go with the pluripotent stem cell derived. And there's been a lot of projects, you know, and, and progress and success there with, like, decellularized scaffold and generation of just lung at all in vitro and alveoli, crude though they uh, have been. Um, and crude there is the word because modeling the, the you know, the structural, much less the functional complex complexity of the lung in vitro, it's kind of insurmountable is, is how these authors put it. Um, because there's a lot of diversity there, 40 plus cell types uh, from all embryonic layers in the lung. And you got to align those with the vascular components, right? The lung is really all about bringing the air into the vasculature, into the blood. So, yeah, it's tough. 500 million alveoli you need for efficient gas exchange. That's a lot. So the authors here and a lot of people have thought, hey, we'll make organs in animals. You know, I know we talked to Jun Wu about this, doing it in the pig, and it's amazing stuff going on. But there's still, it's still a challenge because you need the whole organ, you know. It's not just chimerism. We're talking about whole organ. Um, this is where blastocyst complementation comes in. Like I said, it's been done with the pancreas. Um, but in this case, what they did was a combination of two things. I don't want to get too technical. But they effectively made it so that these, that mouse embryos, by undermining either FGFR2 conditionally or uh, beta-catenin signal integration, they could pretty much ablate the lung while sparing the trachea and esophagus. Um, or they could ablate the trachea and esophagus too, and the cells 
um, could compensate for that. But the point is, is that the, the other parts of the embryo weren't affected. The placenta, the, the limb, other gene networks that are affected by the same gene networks that dictate lung, lung morphogenesis and induction weren't affected. They were able to laser target uh, and then rescue with wild-type pluripotent stem cells that were injected into blastocysts. Uh, and these uh, mice survived into adulthood. They had lungs that were functionally indistinguishable from wild-type littermates. Um, and here's another nuance here that made it a big impact, is that they had to kind of tweak the culture conditions of the pluripotent stem cells so that they'd be globally DNA hypomethylated and had increased acetylation. So it's not just a story about the technique for how you clear the, the endogenous uh, enlage there to, to make way for the donor cells, but also the donor cells have to be tweaked themselves. Uh, and this is going to have, I think, major implications. It's a technique for how we can ablate uh, the lung, at least, in, in mouse and other larger animals, maybe pig, uh, during development. And also we're going to have to refine our culture conditions in human uh, or other uh, pluripotent stem cells if we want to be able to make uh, in, in, you know, comprehensively to make wholesale an entire organ in an extra or non-human animal. So this is cool. Uh, it's probably some people are going to start freaking out about it because I mean, they're just going to go right to like, uh, they're going to make a brain next or whatever. But um, it's cool. And I think it's going to be a, a big splash moving forward. Dale, and I think this is the uh, this is the end game, man. I think one day we're just gonna wake up and Hiromi Tsunakuchi or you know the Belmonte group down in San Diego. It's gonna be like, all right, yeah, we did it. We made a, a pig with the with a human heart, hmm. and then we're just gonna be like, oh, all right, it's over. It's <laughs> <laughs> that. over. Yeah, that, that that's that. You know, unlimited supply of organs on demand. You know, just by growing them in 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 pigs. Like as you mentioned, technically this is really really challenging and you probably know something about that i remember the old uh the rat mouse uh pancreatic hybrid that you're talking about mm. the efficiency in that paper was really low and the fact that they're able to actually make anything at all any sort of chimera at all is you know is an accomplishment so i think it, we're getting there so that's one approach right it's the chimera approach and then the other approach is the the humanized organs approach right so you don't really do the the whole blastocyst complementation but instead you have pigs who have like immunocompatible organs do you think there's like one of those approaches that's going to be better than the other yeah i mean that's a great question yeah that there i remember there's a couple things the immunocompatibility and they also have engineered the pigs so the whole idea of the zoonotic transfer and like the those like latent viral elements were deleted so clearly are all steam ahead on both tracks but i think you know it, judging from what uh Nakauchi said at ISSCR, I think it's what's really right around the corner is getting little mini human organs in a, in a mouse or something like that. Because this mouse on mouse is, is hitting, you know, the, the, the net now. And I think that the, the, they're kind of massaging the, the populace so that they're going to be ready for the human element here that people are really going to freak out about. And I can't wait to see how that goes it's coming absolutely it's coming and it's probably going to be one of a few groups and i'm excited i mean i think that's the ultimate goal of, of stem cell biology we'll see what happens so last thing we're going to talk about is a uh, it's a paper in science that came out recently and uh it's less of an ips less of an organoid paper we've been talking about ipscs and organoids for forever now right this is um i really like this paper because it's a pure mechanistic paper really beautiful mechanistic paper that has translational applications for potentially millions of guys or and folks around the world it has to do with hair loss okay look you laugh but you know i know my <laughs> genetics okay i know my genetics and I'm, I'm 29 and you know my hair is already starting to thin out i can see it coming oh, it's boy. coming i'm just enjoying it while it lasts but uh, all right, hair loss. You know, we need all the work we can get. I don't think you, you'll have a problem with that. Oh, no. I got a teeny, teeny weeny afro, but it's thinning out as we speak, my friend. So I think <laughs> I'm, I'm in line as well. Everything helps for sure. And, uh, you know, hopefully the, uh, the group of Elaine Fuchs is, uh, is going to help answer some of those questions and bring, 
hair loss to an end. We'll see. So the title of the paper is Stem Cell Driven Lymphatic Remodeling Coordinates Tissue Regeneration, and it's a science paper. So it's cool. It's, uh, it's talking about asymmetric repair, asymmetric regeneration of your hair, right? So when you cut your hair or, you know, you shave a portion of the hair on your skin, the, the hair follicles tend to grow back in a pretty coordinated fashion. And the idea was we didn't really know how that happened. And it turns out that apparently it's not the blood system, it's not the circulatory system, but it's the lymphatic system that's acting as kind of a as a conduit, as a as a drainage system, and as also as a, a communication system that enables stem cells in different compartments in these hair follicles to actually communicate with one another. So it's it's really neat. I didn't realize that the lymphatic system had such an important role to play in regeneration too. So basically, what they did is they used a pretty cool mouse system whereby they have a transparent skin and did a bunch of absolutely gorgeous imaging in this paper. You should definitely check it out. And they're able to identify that there's actually a secretome switch. There's a secretome switch that actually happens in these uh, hair follicle stem cells. And there's a switch between an angiopoietin-like 7 and angiopoietin-like 4. And depending on which of these compounds, which of these molecules is on, either you're going to get activation of the stem cell compartment or quiescence. And importantly, these molecules are being secreted through the lymphatic system. That's how they're kind of communicating from one stem cell niche in one follicle to another. So it's a role for the lymphatic system that hasn't really been well described before. And like I said, beautiful images. It's not an iPSC organoid paper, so that's kind of refreshing. But I think there's translatability here. Perhaps the lymphatic system itself is the key to helping me grow back my hair. Please. Oh, man. <laughs> That's the hope, right? So lymphatic system, it's, it's more than you thought. Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I also have worked a lot in the vasculature and, and was part of, uh, I think, this era where we're appreciating that the vasculature is not just a passive conduit, as my mentor Shaheen Rafi has always said. In fact, it has a lot of paracrine input there. And now this is another nuance. It's the lymphatic that it may be this channel uh, for, of course, passive, but also active, instructive, regenerative inputs. And like you, I think, are alluding to, it probably doesn't stop at the hair, although that's what we care about at this stage in our life, perhaps. It probably has implications for other organs and other regenerative niches as well so i'm sure she's on that although she loves the hair so maybe she'll hand that off to you and you can look into the heart and lymphatics arun have a look maybe who knows you know the lymphatics are everywhere right so there's this whole connective system and you know now we know that there's a whole secreted aspect of it that's contributing to regeneration so hey maybe that's the key to heart regeneration too you know who knows it's the lymphatic system you got enough on your plate all right stick to your guns uh we're gonna move on to another regenerative element here but we're kind of out of our depth here literally so we're gonna bring in selena giuliano to talk about hydra a hugely regenerative uh animal although it's hard to uh, recognize some of the mechanisms of that she's gonna inform us of that but first if you're looking for antibodies for your research, Stem Cell Technologies offers a range of primary and secondary antibodies widely used in immunology, neuroscience, epithelial cell biology, and other research areas. You can learn more and integrate these high-quality antibodies into your workflow by visiting www.stemcell.com antibodies. Maybe we can find some subset of the lymphatics that's driving all regeneration in the body. Let's see about that, maybe in the hydra. All right, guys, this episode we have for you Dr. Selena Giuliano, who's with us from the UC Davis Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology, where she's assistant professor. Dr. Giuliano studies the aquatic animal hydra. That's something fresh for the show which undergoes continual self-renewal, lacks senescence, and has incredible regenerative capabilities. Her lab investigates the differentiation trajectories in Hydra, how injury triggers developmental pathways during regeneration, and the mechanisms that allow Hydra stem cells to constantly replace 
the Soma. Dr. Giuliano, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, it's really a pleasure. Uh, why don't you start off by giving us a bit of an overview of your research focus there at UC Davis? Okay, sounds good. Um, so in my laboratory, uh, we are really interested in basic developmental biology questions, um, um, understanding how an organism replaces all of its cells using stem cells, and then also understanding how um, injury can trigger the this, these processes sort of like at ectopic locations, right? So... Um, in, in particular, we use the animal Hydra because it has these really, it's really amazing ability, as you were talking about in the intro, to both um, replace all of its cells and then also to regenerate. And its regenerative capab capabilities are really unparalleled um, in the animal kingdom. So it you can chop it up into many, many pieces and get many, many Hydra out of that. Um, but you can also dissociate the animal into single cells and then reaggregate those Reaggregate those cells into little balls, and you will get new hydra uh, growing from from those sort of um, little balls of cells. So they organize themselves back into a hydra, essentially. So this is obviously really remarkable, um, and we really want to understand basically everything about hydra and how it works. So, Dr. Juliana, um, obviously the hydra is an incredible model system, which is unique for its. Ex exceptional regenerative capacity. And we're talking about recently how model organisms like the zebrafish and the axolotl, for example, are kind of staples when it comes to model organisms in regenerative medicine and regenerative biology. So I've got to ask, why doesn't the, the hydra get more love? So, you know, I'm all, <laughs> I'm all aboard the hydra, tra hydra train. It's got, you know, an amazing ability that's kind of rare in the, the animal kingdom, but it doesn't seem like a whole lot of folks work with hydra. So if you had to make a pitch to folks for actually adopting the Hydra as a model system, what would it be? What would that pitch be? Um, so I think one of the major advantages of Hydra is the simplicity of the animal. So it really is um, only by morphology, maybe 20 cell types. Um, and so I think with Hydra, we have an opportunity to understand the organism um, almost completely. Um, and, uh, and it's also sitting at a very interesting place, uh, sort of on the animal tree, um, as a cnidarian, it's, uh, sister to basically all bilaterians. And so you can also find by comparing what we find in Hydra with, um, you know, more complex, um, animals, we can really get to the root of what is the most basic conserved aspects, um, of regeneration. So I think those two things, sort of the simplicity of the animal, that we can do a lot of um, sort of high throughput things, and also uh, the fact that, you know, that it is at this interesting place um, on the tree. I think that, those would be maybe my two pitches to people of, of why you should work with Hydra. Um, and then just thinking about um, animals in general, it is true we have axolotl and zebrafish. These are really actually really great regenerators, not nearly as great as hydra. You can't cut the head off of an axolotl and have it grow back, or you can't cut a zebrafish in half and have two zebrafish. Um, but it's true that actually there's a lot of regeneration throughout the animal kingdom, um, and most of our sort of really workhorse organisms are not good regenerators. And so I think the field of regenerative, sort of basic regenerative biology lagged behind a little bit because, you know, Drosophila or C. elegans or mice are not the best at regenerating. And that's where all of our genetic tools are really focused. And so I think, you know, um, a lot of the new technologies that are coming out, all of the different sequencing technologies, CRISPR, it's really helping people who study sort of offbeat organisms to really start making some good progress. Um, and so, so I think it's like, it's a good time to be studying a strange organism that does wild things and regenerates really well. And I think we'll, we'll be learning a lot very fast. Yeah, it's a good time now, but it probably hasn't always been. And I'm just curious how you find yourself as a scientist in the Hydra. I mean, are you coming from mouse and you're just like, you know, mouse is a little complex. I'm going to reduce it. Or are you coming from yeast and building up installed at Hydra? How do you, how'd you find yourself how, in the yeah, Hydra? How did I end up here? Yeah. 
So actually, I've never. So I actually did my graduate work in uh, sea urchin development. Another. So and I guess in a way, the sea urchin and the hydra have a lot in common in that they actually have a really long history in biology. Um, and some really fundamental discoveries have been made with both systems. Um, but then, uh, because of um, the progress made in, 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 in um, genetic approaches in things like Drosophila and C. elegans, both sea urchin research and hydro research sort of fell behind. And there's always been actually sort of a strong community of both, but they're, sm they're relatively small. Um, and so you know, it's, I think, only more recently that people are starting to pay attention again to, to Hydra because now we can do some, you know, some interesting things. Um, but your question was, how did I get into Hydra? So I, um, as a graduate student, I was looking for um, some new system to move to out of the sea urchins. Uh, and I was interested in, really interested in stem cells and questions about regeneration. And, uh, and I knew that I wanted, I, I understood the importance of sort of diversifying our model systems. And I knew I wanted to try to find something that was a little bit offbeat. Um, I liked the sea urchin community. I liked sort of the smallness of the community. I thought that's a good um, kind of environment for training graduate students. You're not constantly looking over your shoulder at like big labs bearing down on you. And, you know, <laughs> you want to be able to take your time a little bit mm. so your students can get some footing. Um, and so I was looking around and I actually considered for some time working in planarians. That was like a pretty big thing. Like they were just like getting really big when I was um, finishing up my graduate work. But then I actually saw a seminar uh, that um, at my university, I was at Brown University at the time, uh, given by Rob Steele. He's a professor at uh, UC Irvine. He's been working with, with Hydra for the last 30 years. And so he gave uh, a talk at Brown. And the point of the talk was really, hey, look at how great a Hydra is. How come everybody doesn't work on this? And I thought, he's right. That That's really remarkable. <laughs> I got very interested in it right away. Um, and that was uh, just a few years after the first transgenic hydra had been made. Mm. And so that was a big um, sort of deciding factor for me, like the ability to actually make a transgenic hydra. That's kind of a big deal. They actually still can't do this in the with planarians. So I contacted Rob and he was immediately just so kind and so helpful and you know that really uh made a big difference he immediately sent me animals and i started culturing them and just playing with them a little bit um to see if it was something that i really wanted to work with and you know i just kind of fell in love with them right away and uh luckily i also had a very supportive graduate advisor and he had no problem with me kind of collecting a little data on the side so that i could write a fellowship and i got that funded and then i went on to do my postdoc um, at Yale uh, with Haifan Lin, and he doesn't work in Hydra, he works in flies and mice, but I had this fellowship funded, and so he let me, sort of, we were working on similar questions, but I was using Hydra um, as a model, and so he let me sort of do my own thing in his lab, hmm. which was which was great. <laughs> hmm. So it sounds like you've had some phenomenal mentors along the way who have been really supportive in helping you get started and, you know, take on the Hydra as a model organism. And, you know, I think that's that's kind of how we all get here. Right. You know, it's that's right. It's on, yeah. on the shoulders of other people who have done phenomenal work and are, are willing to, to mentor uh, us to get to the next step. So Dalen and I are, you know, huge fans of model organisms. We're both developmental biologists. Dalen actually got into dev bio through Xenopus. You know, he actually mm -hmm. was a Xenopus guy back in the day. And I'm a heart guy, so I naturally love the zebrafish because, you know, mm -hmm. you can cut off a big portion of the zebrafish heart and it's going to grow back, right? So, you know, maybe not as intense of a regenerative capacity as the hydra, but it's it's there. So, you know, model organisms are great, not only because of their generation time, because they're so easy to use, but also because, you know, there's a bunch of data sets out there, right? Their genomes are well characterized, well sequenced, and so there's good reference for other researchers to use. So is that also the case with the hydra, even though it's a more uncommon model organism? So what sort of genomic data sets are out there that hydra researchers can use? for their work. Uh, yeah, so we actually are doing pretty well these days with our genomic resources. Um, so 
spearheaded by Rob Steele, who I already mentioned, uh, we do have uh, a hydrogenome, which is now um, a, 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 is a very good assembly. We have basically have chromosome level assembly of the genome. Um, and we have just huge amounts of transcriptomic uh, resources. So, I mean, I think we have, in terms of genomic resources, we, we have, you know, basically what we need. It's, you know, it, it's not as good as it's going to be for a yeast or a mouse, right? Our, our annotation, gene annotations are not, you know, up to, um, up to those levels. And there's always challenges when you're working in, in one of these quote-unquote non-model systems. Um, but those things, I, it, you know, the technology just keeps getting better and better and it, it you know, I, I don't think it should hold anybody back from trying to work in a non-model. Um, and I should say that we've just recently um, launched uh, a website called openhydra.org. Hmm. And that is where you can uh, find links to all of the resources that are out there. Yeah. What about these new techniques? You kind of alluded to, to CRISPR and how Hydra how it was a huge uh, watershed for you when there was the first genetic targeting of Hydra transgenic there. W what's uh, going on with Hydra and CRISPR? I mean, we're going to talk about how you applied tech in your science paper in just a minute. Um, and so that kind of hints at how we're leveraging the big technologies towards this simple uh, the marvelous organism. What about CRISPR? What about genetic engineering and Hydra? Do you do it? And if you're going to do it, what kind of stuff would you do it for? Yeah, so we actually haven't gotten CRISPR to work. We haven't given it a huge effort yet. So that's something that uh, when you have a small community, if something doesn't work immediately right away, sometimes it can be hard to, you know, get to get it going. Um, so, and the other thing is that we we have the ability to make transgenic animals and we and it turned out to be quite simple with hydra if you just inject um a plasmid into the early embryo it randomly integrates actually a pretty high rate and then because of the asexual development um we can even if you have a somatic transformation you can actually maintain this through asexual propagation and purify select and purify um, your population that way it's it gets us some things like we can we can express basically anything, but we don't have the ability to like make inducible expression. We can express hairpins, for example, and knock genes down, but it's constitutive. We can you know overexpress or express tagged versions of things, but it's um, it's an overexpression because we can't target um, an endogenous locus, for example. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of room to grow in terms of genetic engineering. Um, and we do have a grant from the NSF called an EDGE grant with the purpose of actually hiring people to work specifically on building tools to, mm. to improve um, our ability to manipulate the genome. Because clearly it can be hard to get, you know, students need to be pushing their science forward, not pushing techniques forward. And so this initiative by the NSF, I think, is really huge because it helps people to actually put time and money into developing the tools they need to answer the, you know, questions in the future. So, yeah, so no CRISPR yet, but we, but that's part of our, will be part of our effort. So Dr. Giuliano, as somebody who's done some CRISPR, you know, it's, it's not the end all. CRISPR definitely has some work to be done in terms of improving its on-target and off-target specificity. So it's cool to see, you know, there's other options that are out there for, for something like Hydra as well. So we're going to dive right into your science paper, which actually came out a few months ago. It's a, it's a phenomenal piece of work that did an in-depth analysis of Hydra development using another tool that everybody's using these days, single-cell transcriptomic analysis, and in particular, the DropSeq platform. So could you take us through the paper and talk a little bit about what you learned from this in-depth single-cell analysis of the Hydra? Sure, absolutely. So um, what we essentially did was single-cell sequence uh, the entire animal. Um, and what's really um, great about Hydra is that it's in this continual state of development. And so every 20 days, every cell has been replaced. Um, and so there are active stem cells um, that are just always, um, you know, giving rise to new differentiated cells. And so because of that, in a steady state adult hydra, you have basically 
um, whole differentiation pathways represented. So you're not just going to be isolating stem cells and differentiated cells using single cell sequencing. You're also going to be finding these um, states along the differentiation pathways. So these sort of more transient states. And you know, Hydra is just full of these transi transient states. So when we did the single cell sequencing, we could even in our initial clustering start to already see these differentiation trajectories kind of coming out, coming out of that. Um, and so we ended up working uh, with the second author on the paper you'll see is Jeff Farrell and he's a postdoc in Alex Shear's lab, actually not for long, he's starting his own lab at the NIH soon. Um, and he, uh, you know, there's several different um, um, packages out there for, for putting uh, cells into differentiation trajectories, but um, he has developed one called ERV, and so we worked with him to build these differentiation trajectories for Hydra. So Hydra has three, only three lineages. I told you it's a very simple animal, and each lineage is supported by its own stem cell dedicated stem cell population. So we split um, the cells basically into three piles, one for each lineage, and then we built these differentiation trajectories um, with Jeff, um, which basically shows you now how each stem cell gives rise to all the different kinds of uh, differentiated cells. And then you can um, look along these pathways for genes that turn on and off as cells differentiate. And so we focused specifically on transcription factors, and we found um, you know, transcription factors that are expressed along these trajectories. And then we also found groups of uh, co-expressed genes that are um, expressed along these trajectories. So we kind of start making predictions about um, genes that are turned on and off or groups of genes that are turned on and off as cells differentiate, and then also the transcription factors that might be responsible for turning these um, genes on and off. So this gives us a lot to, to look at in the future. Um, and then uh, we also made a complete map of the nervous system of Hydra. So Hydra has um, uh, basically just a simple nerve net, and uh, neuro neurobiologists have become interested in Hydra recently because Hydra gives us an opportunity to kind of understand an entire nervous system in a simple creature. Uh, you can you can you can look at the entire nervous system with things like. Uh, like GCAM, like fluorescent GCAM, you can see the whole nervous system, uh, you know, as it's um, active, and you can and you can image the whole nervous system, and um, you know, it has. We found that it has maybe twelve subtypes. We hate to just say like a number of, of sort of <laughs> neuro number of neurons it has. If we keep sequencing, maybe we're going to find that we can refine that even more. But it has a, a pretty manageable number of, of subtypes. People have started to work out different circuits. Um, and so we think moving forward, we can really um, manipulate the nervous system with our transgenic approaches. We have demonstrated that we can, you know, drive expression into specific types of neurons. And I think we can, um, really kind of understand how this nervous system gives rise to different behaviors, basically go from molecules to circuits to behaviors in the future. And, you know, an advantage, I think, so, you know, C. elegans is also a really good model for looking at nervous system, but something that's different about the Hydra is that it is so regenerative. So this is a system where the nervous system is being replaced, turned over all the time, and you can also regenerate the whole nervous system even from a single stem cell. So that's very different from an adult C. elegans, and so I think it's a, a good um, uh, sort of complementary uh, model organism for understanding nervous system biology. Yeah, well, I mean, the nervous system aside, fundamentally, this is a major, major effort. The scale of the analysis, the scope of it, as you alluded to, it's not just regeneration. You're drilling down to the mapping of the neural network there. Um, and, you know, wholesale, the adult, down to single cells, that's an, another amazing thing. And I think the, one of the major takeaways for me as a developmental biologist who's interested mainly in mammalian cells uh, was that there's a lot of novel cell populations relevant to regeneration that came out of this. It seems like cell populations that hadn't been considered to the degree that they kind of emerged in their relevance in your, in your assay there. Do you have any... Uh, ambition to kind of test whether or not there's similar 
cellular, molecular processes in play in higher mammals? For example, is there like a mammalian correlate to those interstitial stem cells you identified? And lastly, I'm sorry, Selena, you're going to have to wait, but if they're lost, <laughs> if these things have been lost with evolution, last episode we talked about in the roundup, how you look at these, like there was a sea answer module that seems to be lost with cold-blooded to warm-blooded animals, and that may account for some of the loss of regenerative capacity. Do you try and look if you can like enforce these gene networks that you find in Hydra in a mammalian cell type and kind of restore regeneration, or is the evolutionary distance just too far for that to really be a practical ambition? So... That's, that's, a, that's a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the, the first thing is the interstitial stem cell. It, it, I think this is a very specific um, cell type. Maybe not even all cnidarians have it. So it's been found. So you can kind of split cnidarians into a couple of groups. And uh, the uh, hydra is part of the hydrozoans. And so all hydrozoans have this interstitial stem cell. And it was actually perhaps the first stem cell ever found in any animal. Mm. Um, I don't, we don't even think that uh, all cnidarians have it. So I think it might be sort of specialized for hydrozoans. So I, I don't think, um, I wouldn't expect to find this kind of cell in a, in a mammal. But I think what might be more interesting would be to look at um, kind of the gene networks that are being used um, to maintain stem cells and to differentiate cells. It, a lot of the same transcription factors are involved. Right? So if we look at what it make what it takes to make a neuron in Hydra, it's a lot of the same transcription factors that you would find to make a neuron in a mammal. And so we can understand like basic things about how to make cells from stem cells, even if it, we can't say this kind of stem cell exists, you know, in a mammal. Mammal has so many different kinds of stem cells. Mm. <laughs> so it'd be hard to sort of make those direct, direct connections. Um, and then I sort of, there was a lot going on in that question. What else did you want I to guess, know? I guess, I mean, it's so sorry. <laughs> I really, I just have so many questions for you, Selena. But the idea is just like, can you, can you kind of, is there, it's more about like, okay, so what's the translatability, you know? Like, how is this yeah. relevant Everybody to regeneration? To exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, so yeah. like, is there an idea that, okay, we'll take this network and the gene network, like you said, it's basic for making a neuron. Maybe we can tweak it in a mammalian system to make it like, make, fresher neurons or increase the rate of self renewal or something like that. Is that that the at the end of the at the end of the day, is that one of your goals? So I think the in terms of uh, translatability, uh, our one of the directions that we're moving in that we will hopefully write a paper soon is thinking about then regeneration. So you know we as humans don't really have a very good ability to regenerate. You know, if we if we get a major catastrophic injury, lose a limb or something, we're just going to scar. We're not going to we're not going to grow a new arm. And of course, we talked about at the beginning, there's plenty of organisms where that's not the case. And what we find interesting is that it's the injury response, whether you're going to whether you're going to scar or you're going to regrow something is really highly conserved. It's really the same in a hydra, um, in a human, and all, you know, all everything in between. And so we would really like to start making direct molecular connections between the injury response and these developmental pathways that we are also defining. Mm. So and and you know, we are starting to we are starting to you know find those answers and we're excited about um, you know, the, where the work is going in the future of our work. Um, and and not, that's not just us, but also sort of all these people who are sort of basic, studying the basic biology of regeneration. So I think it's not really in my um, future to go do something like truly translational, but I think myself and all the regenerative biologists that I know, we sort of are are going towards that goal of really, if we can dig down and really understand those molecular connections between injury and development, I think that could inform people who are more sort of translational minded and want to know how do we actually grow back an arm. Mm. 
<laughs> uh, translatability. Come on, Dale, and you can cut her, cut her some slack. You know, we don't work for the NIH. Not everything has to be about translatability. Fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. I started basic. I'm with you. I'm just saying I've been rejected by a lot of reviewers based on that criticism. So, you know. Uh, yeah, but we, we've managed to convince the NIH to fund us, so. We, we, nice. <laughs> they, do, they do they do respect the basic biology as long as you can give like a few sentences <laughs> to explain well, how how it how it helps. Well, that's how it refreshing. Helps health in the in the in the long run, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Sounds good. So I guess uh, kind of going back a little bit to uh, technologies, you know, one thing we've talked about a lot here is different types of technologies that you've used for, for your analysis, like single cell, for example. And it's, you know, it's one of those technologies like CRISPR that, you know, it's everyone seems like, you know, they're using it for like their applications, right? So like you did a bunch of single cell analysis for your paper. So you must be on that single cell bandwagon as well, right? So you might have a little bit of insight as to like kind of what's next for single cell. If, if you had to kind of dive into the future of single cell, like what would, what's the next big thing? Do you think it's single cell ATAC seek, single cell proteomics? Do you think it's a matter of getting the overall cell numbers up from the analysis? So what do you think is the future of single cell technology, not only for an organism like, like Hydra and for your analysis, but for other applications as well? Um, okay, so I think, well, and you did mention single cell attack seek, and I think that's definitely, that, that's here. Um, we haven't tried it yet. I'm a, I'm a little bit nervous to to, <laughs> to open that can of worms, but I think eventually we'll 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 need to go there. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think a taxi is a fantastic um, uh, thing to do. We're doing it like in, on bulk, you know, in bulk tissues, but we haven't tried single cell yet. But I think that that will definitely open a lot of new doors um, in terms of single cell sequencing. I think it would. I mean trying to I don't I don't actually know what's being done in terms of trying to improve the depth of sequencing but that seems like something that would clearly be helpful and then the cost bringing down the mm -hmm. cost so that you can so that you can do more I think <laughs> the mm -hmm. more the better <laughs> yeah. I mean we're currently using DropSeq which is actually pretty affordable but everybody's moving to 10x genomics which is a lot more expensive so we're mm -hmm. at a crossroads um you know, trying to determine if we're going to keep with the more labor-intensive, cheaper technology, or uh, move on to something a little bit more expensive. But hopefully, those costs will come down so that. Well, you know, I don't know so if if you've heard uh, Selena, but there's an issue with that. Was with these uh, single-cell seq platforms? Have you heard about the 10x versus BioRad patent battle? Have you heard this? Well, no, actually, I know I haven't. Well, what ultimately happened? This may be dated by the time this airs, but it's still it's hot news because it's affecting all our projects. You guys should listen up. Is if you have a 10x project going on, you can continue the 10x project. But when you commence a new 10x project, your center is probably going to steer you away from using the reagent. Because 10x lost a patent battle with BioRad, I think it is. And they're not yes, able yeah, yeah. to secure all that reagent and continue on. So, I mean, to Arun's point, it's two things. You know, you got it's a moving target with the technology because it's getting better. But the commercialization of that technology is increasingly fraught. And at the end of the day, this, the, you know, the researcher, you guys and I, were sitting there. We may be handcuffed to it with respect to whether or not we can compare one data set to the next. So... Be cautious, guys. Be cautious. But, um, you know. So maybe we should just, you're telling me we should just keep doing drop seek. Well, do it in our lab. I would just, <laughs> yes. You might want to stick with drop seek. You might want to do, you know, a little DIY thing or, uh, yeah. you know, never stop this project, uh, Selena. Just keep this project going forever. And I think you can justify the reagent sales. But it's increasingly fraught. I have one question. It's a little bit aside um, yeah. about the Hydra. And I don't know, maybe this isn't. Uh, you're not up on myth or anything, but I read that the, the Hydra is so named because when you, you know, the, of myth, um, it's, it was, you know, Heracles fought the Hydra, and the thing about the Hydra is that you cut off that one head and two would grow back. So I'm wondering, is it, they must have, you know, the, the animal was named after the myth? No, the myth was named after the animal, right? So has Hydra been in place since Aristotle? Have people been looking at this organism in pond water, do you know, for, you know, time immemorial? Was it the first model? Um, so 
I think it's named after the myth, but the first um, sort of the sort of the father of the of the hydro field is Abraham Trump, uh, Trembley. Um, he was in Switzerland, and he published about hydro regeneration in his memoirs in 1744. Mm. And so it may be. So that's where um, the regenerative capabilities of hydro, that's when they were first sort of published. Um, uh, And it may be the first animal where where regeneration was discovered, although I think that's probably debatable, but it's at least one of the first. But it it doesn't go that far back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is very cool. I mean, any animal that you can um, decapitate and then, you know, feel good about, I think that's a a big, there's a big upside there. You don't even have to feel bad. You can cut it right in half and don't have to feel bad about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Although it makes me wonder about the ethics of these uh, experiments. Do you have hydra that have just been, I mean, they're clonal essentially, right? You have hydra that since you started your science, that same hydra genetically is in hand right now. Is that the way that works? That is the way that works. And in fact, some of our cultures have been passed from other labs. So they're 30 or 40 years old. Yeah, wow. they've just been copying themselves this entire wow. time. And they're spread out between many, many different labs. So it's ah. like a super organism all over the, all over the world. <laughs> Amazing. All right, Dr. Juliana, this has been super informative about, you know, a model organism that I don't know that much about. And I'm, you know, I'm really excited that I've been able to learn more about it. It's uh, so powerful. And I think as developmental biologists, as people who are interested in regenerative medicine, I think everybody should know about the Hydra. So thank I you so much for joining us. I completely agree. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And, yeah. And so I guess we'll wrap up by asking a couple of final peripheral questions, kind of a, a couple of questions that will let our listeners know a little bit more about you as a person and as a scientist. So starting off, if... Uh, are you reading any non-science books? And if you are, you know, what sort of, uh, what books have you thought are awesome? Yeah, so I do try to read, uh, but it's been difficult in the last four years since starting this job. So I, I, I read I read very, very slowly these days. Hmm. Uh, but I did just finish a completely non-scientific uh, book called All the Light We Cannot See. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this book. Of course. Uh, okay. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, my dad gave it to me a couple of years ago, and I finally read it. Um, and so it's a basically a historical fiction book um, following the, the lives of two teenagers during World War II, one uh, from France and one from Germany. And it's just a beautiful story. Um, and it was kind of by not by design, but completely by accident as I was just finishing that book after reading it for like a year, because that's how long it takes me now. Um, I was uh, in France and I took a tour um, of uh, Normandy, like, and looked at all the the D-Day sites. And it was just, first of all, it was an amazing day. And second of all, once it, once I got done with that, I had like just a few chapters left uh, in the book. And it was, I, it really, um, I just, it was such an amazing thing to go back to that book and have just been at all those sites and to be reading basically about D-Day in the book, you know, and I didn't plan it and it just like really touched me and sort of changed me. So <laughs> I thought I would share that. <laughs> wow. That, that, that does sound like a major impact. Although I will say France might've had something to do with it. I was in France recently reading Sports Illustrated and it, I, it really touched me. <laughs> Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, it was it was something about the light. I think. Um, Going back uh, to a peripheral question here, follow up on that. Uh, And you talked a little bit about the 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 Godfather of the Hydra. Uh, Maybe uh, he is amongst them. Who who are your scientific heroes? Uh, Yeah. So, for me, I think first of all, we talked about how I have a lot of good mentors. So those are certainly among my heroes, but. I also think a lot about sort of the women who came before me, um, especially some of, you know, some of Rosalind Franklin, for example, is a really good example, like women who who did such amazing things and up against, you know, great odds and didn't always get the credit that they deserved. And so another one like that is Ethel Brown, who uh, is actually 
one of the she was worked on Hydra in the early 1900s, and she actually discovered the organizer. So you guys are developmental biologists, so you think mm. that Spamon is the one who discovered mm. the organizer. But actually, in 1909, she discovered um, that the very sort of top of the Hydra acts as an organizer. So she removed it and put it onto the side of the Hydra, and you could, it organized the tissue to grow into a new axis. Mm. And so the the story goes that Spamon actually had Ethel Brown's paper on his desk. And so he was definitely influenced by Uncle Brown's <laughs> work, <laughs> which happened, you know, his paper is 1924s and hers is 1909. So she actually is the first to, as far as we know, really discover that principle. Wow. So I think about, you know, some of the women who came before me who made it possible for me to be, you know, successful as a woman in science. Some of the unrecognized greats. Take that, Speeman. We're, we're <laughs> on to you. <laughs> um, that's great work. I mean, thankfully, your work's being recognized out there, and uh, I, I think you're probably going to be a scientific hero to a lot of young ladies out there and young men. Um, so thanks for joining us and sharing that, and uh, thank you for all your good work. We'll hope to have you back on the uh, Stem Cell Podcast sometime soon. Okay, well, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks, you guys, for joining us for this episode. It was a good one. We'll see you in a couple weeks.